Please. Um, would you turn in, was that me? Sorry. Would you turn in your Bibles to Joshua 9? We're going to be in Joshua 9 and uh, reading out of Joshua 9 quite a few times. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pray that my heart will stop beating so hard because this is scary. Oh no, it's kind of hard. It is kind of hard. Um, so, anyway, I wanted to tell you all that almost two weeks ago I had this gathering at my house. And um, in attendance were a princess, a couple of Italian brothers, a dinosaur, a mushroom, a cowboy, and a space ranger. And of course, I'm talking about Halloween, and the costumes worn by some of my children and grandchildren. Dressing up can be fun, right? And, and this is just kind of an aside, but trick-or-treat, I think it's really so bizarre. Like, I've, I think about it every year, like... We are walking up to people's houses. We are strangers knocking on their doors and saying, is anybody in there, my little grandson? And, you know, asking them for candy, and they give it to you. I mean, they're in there waiting for you to come, even. And it's just kind of crazy. It's kind of weird. Um, this week in Joshua 9, we had our own story of dressing up, didn't we? Our own trick-or-treat in which Gibeon gets the treat and Israel is tricked. We learn what happens when Israel falls for a disguise, when they trust in appearances, they lean on their own understanding, they fail to ask God's counsel, and are tricked into making a covenant. Um, now, I know I got you to turn to Joshua 9, but I want you to go back just a few pages to Joshua 5, and I'm going to read verse 1. <clears throat> As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So what happened when the people heard back in chapter 5? What, did, what happened? Their hearts melted, right? Um, Chapters 5 through 8 went on to describe the first few battles in the land, that great success at Jericho, and then the defeat at Ai, the sin of Achan, and the second battle of Ai. And so now let's look at the first two verses of 9, if you'll turn back there. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to what? To fight against Joshua and Israel. So verse 1 of 9 sounds a lot like verse 1 of chapter 5, except for that reaction. It's totally different now, isn't it? Um, they're going to fight. Most likely after hearing of that defeat at Ai, they saw that Israel is not really infallible like we thought. Israel can be beaten. Or Perhaps they just thought that there was strength in numbers and that the only chance they had was to band together to try to defeat Israel. The Gibeonites, though, have a different reaction. Um, let's read verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning. And boy, did they ever. So what do they do? They prepare a costume. So ladies if you're looking for any ideas next year for a costume. You can dress 
As someone from a distant country, a traveler from a distant country, their clothes and sandals were worn out, their bread was dry and crumbly, even their donkeys are a part of the costume. They even got those into the act, you know, putting these old worn out skins on them and they had their wine, um, their wine skins were all tattered and mended. So why did they need to look like they were from a distant country? I got you to do this in your homework, but I'm just gonna ask you to turn back to, jo- uh, excuse me, not Joshua, Deuteronomy 7, verses one and two. And it says here, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, all those people we said, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Now turn a few pages over to Deuteronomy 20, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 16. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as, your, as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive, nothing that breathes. So there was this loophole for cities that were far away. They could, they could um, receive peace. They could become servants. But all the people that were in the land were supposed to be um, devoted to destruction. So it seems like maybe the Gibeonites had heard this and knew this, and that's why they made this elaborate disguise. Not only, though, did they wear costumes, they also had a very clever speech prepared. Um, First, they claim they're from a distant country, but they never tell Joshua the name of it. He asks again, where are you from? Like, you could be from, you you could be our neighbors. How do we really know? And they was like, we're from a very far country. Um, So they lie. They secondly ask for peace. Um, Third, they humble themselves. They're very submissive. They say, we are your servants. Um, And then four, they say they've heard of Yahweh. We've heard of Yahweh, all he did in Egypt and to the two kings beyond the Jordan. Notice that they didn't claim to have heard about the more recent things that had happened, like Jericho or Ai, because that would not have gone with their story. They couldn't have heard about that because they had been traveling. So can you really blame them, though? I mean, they wanted to live. They wanted a good thing. Um, But they go about it in a very deceitful way. Unlike Rahab, you don't see the same confession here that Yahweh is God, the God of heaven above and of earth beneath. Um, They just say they've heard of him. They're trying to save their own skins. Their words are well-crafted to deceive and to flatter, to appeal to Israel's pride, and ultimately to manipulate Israel into getting what they want. In studying for this lesson, I came across an article actually that had seven ways to flatter your boss to get ahead, like without them knowing it. 
Um, and here's number six. What's important to them is important to you. Learn about the other person's values. Are they supporters of a charity? Do they have a specific religious conviction? Are they committed to the environment? Establish early in your conversation that you have that same value before they have a chance to declare their position. When we believe that others share our values on things that are important to us, we're less likely to doubt and more likely to trust what they say next. So that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Um, especially that they play that Yahweh card, and that's like, oh, really, really gets them. So they're flatterers, they're manipulators. Do you know anyone like that? You know me. That's me. Um, a flatterer and a manip manipulator. We had a really nice word for it in my home growing up. We called it buttering up. I was really good at buttering my dad up. And... Um, for all you young moms, I'm a grandmom, so I only have to deal with car seats like once a week. But oh my goodness, car seats are like the most, oh, I just can't stand them. I mean, they're great. I know they're good, but they're just so difficult. Um, so no, there was a day and time for you young, you young ladies when there were no car seat laws. And not only that, there was no seatbelt laws. So I can clearly remember as a very young child standing next to my dad as he drove down the street <laughs> Um, and I sort of had these geographical markers, and if I was kind of near my home, I knew that I was near a McDonald's, and I would suddenly, Daddy, my head hurts so bad. If I could just have a McDonald's hamburger and Coke and French fries, I know it would feel so much better, and nine times out of ten, the car would turn. <laughs> we would go to McDonald's. There was no drive-through. You had to go in, um, but it worked, so it's kind of really cute when you're like three or four, but not when you're 34 or 44 or 54. Um, so I think the first application for us is that we women are to be encouragers, but not flatterers. You can encourage others, but not flatter. And truth tellers, but not liars. We should not be using manipulation to, through flattery, um, we should not use guilt, we should not use fear to manipulate others to get what we want. Proverbs 26, 28, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now let's look back at Joshua 9 for Joshua's reaction in 14, verse 14. So the men took some of the provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So does this scene remind you of anything? Someone who, first of all, has received instructions from God. They know what God has said. They hear a deceptive speech. They use their eyes to see the situation before them and their mind to reason it out, and they fall into a trap. Does that sound like Eve? Does that sound like you at some point? So, sure sounds like me. Joshua heard their story. He handled those provisions, but he did not ask God. And the clear implication um, in the very middle of this chapter is that had he asked, he would have discovered the truth. Um, 
Turn with me to Numbers 27. And I'm going to read from verse 18 through 21. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So um, this Urim, we don't know exactly what that object was. It was a Urim and a Tumim, and the priest had these objects in their breastplate. And what we know is that the priest used them to inquire of the Lord. So Joshua had that at his disposal. He could have asked in that way. A couple of chapters ago, we just saw him on his face before the Lord crying out, and the Lord answers him. Um, so he had a way to ask, but he didn't. The second application for us, I think, is that we too should ask God. We should inquire of the Lord. We should seek his direction in our lives. James 1 verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. We can pray to him daily. We can consult his word. We have access to wise counsel from ministers of the gospel. But too often we are blinded by our own pride. Um, we don't ask for God's help. I think I can handle most of this, God. I can handle these little things. These are just little things. I'll just, I'll, just, uh, I'll just get your help when I need it for something really big. Um, or we're just weakened by our own sinful desires, what we want. We're fooled by our appearances, and we fall into traps. So what happens next? I don't know if there's any Sticks fans, but I just kept thinking, the jig is up, the news is out. <laughs> Woo, 16 of Joshua 9, at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Um, then 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Um, were you surprised? I just felt like I kept waiting for, you know, Israel saying, well, the deal is off because you lied, uh, sorry, or God to just intervene. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen. It's kind of surprising. Um, they kept their promise because they had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and to break that promise would dishonor God's name. Dale Ralph Davis says, Sometimes God's people are called to live obediently amidst the results of their folly. There are times when our preferences, our conveniences, our justifications must not be allowed to dissolve those difficult situations. Can you relate to that? The application for us is that we should also keep our promises as far as we are able in things big or small, no matter the cost to us. Um, 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about oaths or people swearing oaths, you know, by the temple or by the gold. So think of somebody saying, I promise on my grandmother's grave, you know. And Jesus was basically saying, hey, don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Um, do you think about your words carefully? Um, not just the words you speak, but I was thinking about, you know, oh, sorry, y'all, that was really loud. If you go on Facebook you're presented with situations where people are, they've had a death in their family or they're going through cancer and it's so easy just to type those words like praying for you or the little emoji, the praying sign, you know. Um, I've been really convicted about that because, um, and I told my ladies this morning that Siri and I are prayer partners because if I say I'm gonna pray for you, um, I'm going to either do it right then or I'm going to probably set a reminder on my phone now because I'm so convicted about it because it's just so easy to say, I'm praying for you. Um, what about commitments you make? Commitments to doing something. Maybe that's ongoing. Are you teaching your kids to keep their words, to follow through on their commitments? Um, when my kids were little, um, I would really count the cost before I would say something. So it would be like, I won't name a name, um, but because I usually would just, do y'all say all your kids' names? Like you get confused who you're talking to. Matt, Mike, oh, you know. So anyway, it was like, if you do that one more time, I'm going to do whatever. But I made sure before I said that, that I was ready to follow through on it um, because I wanted them to trust me and know that I meant business. Um, so anyway, all that to say, our words are important and uh, we should be women of our word. God is faithful to keep his promises, and we should be too. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Now, look at verse 22. Um, Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. So their curse is to cut wood and, and carry water. Imagine a world where you or your husband or your children, your family members, can never aspire beyond the most menial of tasks, of continual servanthood. Yet, there's a glimmer of hope here because they were going to be servants among God's people and at God's house. We don't see God playing an active role in Joshua 9. He's mentioned only in passing, but make no mistake, he is not ever passive. He is the hero of this story. If we trace the Gibeonites forward throughout the Bible, we find in 2 Samuel 21 that God had brought a three-year famine on Israel when David was king because Saul had killed some of the Gibeonites. And Israel was being punished for that because of the promise that had been made. Um, God did not forget that oath hundreds of years later, after the, even after the people that had made the oath were long dead and gone. And then later still in Nehemiah, um, he mentions 95 sons of Gibeon in the list of exiles returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. They worked side by side the men of Israel to rebuild Jerusalem's wall. Um, I thought in a lot of ways that my story is like the Gibeonites. Um, when I was eight, I asked Jesus into my heart um, because I knew I was a sinner and I knew that Jesus had died for me. And if I didn't accept him, I was going to go to hell. I was wanting to save my own skin. And 
<clears throat> as I grew in the church and grew in the Lord, I understood so much more about him and about that decision that had been made back then. Um, the little bit I understood was what I knew, but yet it's blossomed into so much more. I see the beauty of the gospel now that I never could understand before. I just think this is such a great encouragement to us because, and this is our final application, even when we sin and we make a mess of things, God redeems it and brings blessings over it. He is sovereign over it. I don't know how he does that, um, but we cannot stop his purposes. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I want to leave you with this one quote from Rhett Dodson that says this, The Gibeonites are assigned a menial task for a magnificent God. They are promoted from certain death to the privilege of working in the very courtyard of the tabernacle. They went from cowering in fear for their lives to watching the gospel portrayed day by day as the lambs and bulls and goats were slaughtered for people's sins. God brought good out of evil. Do not make the mistake of thinking that God needs evil to accomplish good. He does not need darkness as a backdrop to shine the majesty and brightness of his glory. But God is so good and so gracious and so powerful that he overrules our foolishness and sin and from it accomplishes his grand purposes. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful indeed that your purposes are the ones accomplished and not ours. Um, may we just apply these truths to our hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen.